Hello and welcome to the EMS On Air podcast. The mission of this podcast is to get the latest COVID-19 pandemic information out to first responders as efficiently, effectively, and clearly as possible. Today is June 15, 2020. I'm Jeff Lassers and I'll be your host. Hey, did you hear the good news? The EMS On Air podcast is now available on American CME. This means that EMS providers can earn EMS CEs by completing an entire podcast and then a brief post-course quiz and survey. Visit AmericanCME.com, click on the courses link, then click on free courses. Scroll through the course list and look for the courses with the brand new EMS On Air podcast logo. Big shout out to Cody for making the new logo. Looks great. Perfect for a transition away from COVID and into all things EMS. We'll be continuing to release more and more episodes on American CME so that EMS providers can benefit from the CEs while they kick back and listen to their new favorite EMS podcast. For now, there's just a few episodes on there, but don't worry, they'll continue to be offered for free. Keep checking the website for more updates on that. In this episode, we get the band back together for an update from our favorite docs, Dr. Steve McGraw, the Oakland County Medical Control Authority EMS Medical Director, and Dr. Russell Faust, Medical Director of Oakland County Health. First, Dr. Faust provides us with an update of the most recent national, state, and local COVID stats, as well as an overview of the current trends we're seeing out there. Then Dr. McGraw addresses recent concerns that have been expressed to him from the EMS community. Doc has been getting a lot of questions about loosening up our airway management restrictions found in our current protocols during the pandemic, and today he discusses the reasons why there have been no changes made at this time. He also touches on why we saw a near doubling of Priority 4 patients in February through May of 2020 compared to 2019, and it isn't due to the airway procedures listed in our emergency protocols. We finish off the episode with a discussion about the recommendations for hospitals in the new State of Michigan executive orders that allow one visitor per patient in hospitals. But remember, these are just guidelines, and each hospital gets to make their own rules in the best interest of their patients. So please contact your EMS coordinator to identify the patient visitor rules at the local hospitals that you transport patients. Please keep emailing your questions, comments, feedback, and episode ideas to qi at ocmca.org and visit ocmca.org. .org/coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes and other details. Follow us on Instagram at EMS on Air and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review. Enjoy the podcast. Let's kick us off Dr. Faust. Can you please give us an update on the trends? Things like opening up trends, testing, retesting and recommendations from the state. Okay, we have we're up to 8568 Oakland cases but more than 7,000 recovered. And we have been testing in long-term care facilities, thanks to uh, most of your listeners. We have tested, let's see, we have 158 impacted facilities, 1,748 confirmed residents, 588 confirmed staff, nearly 500 fatalities in our long-term or senior living facilities, independent living, skilled nursing, nursing homes, assisted memory. We have completed testing in 35 facilities and performed about 5,000 tests in these facilities and continue to test four or five additional facilities every week. The trend in that is that whereas we originally would have, say, 20 positives in a facility of 200 residents and 50 staff early on in this process back in late March, early April, now in a facility of 250 staff, we will have zero or maybe one or maybe two. So the, the trend is clearly on the far side of the curve here in Oakland County. And I'm delighted that, especially in this vulnerable population, 
our long-term care facilities, the, the trend is down. Regarding trends, everybody has heard that we are opening up in Michigan. I will say, before I get into that, let me point out that Newsweek published an article June 14th. So yesterday, look for this. Title is Michigan stay-at-home order greatly reduced virus spread, UK report says. So this was a study that came out of the Imperial College of London and Oxford University. They say that our aggressive lockdown here by our Governor Whitmer reduced fatality by as much as 90%. So at least that's encouraging. Now, everybody's frustrated, so um, we are opening up. The releasing of the lockdown is very much dependent on location within the state. So up in the UP and say in the Traverse area, you can have a congregation, a meeting of people inside up to 100 people, as long as you're maintaining social distancing and outside 250. Here, it's 10 inside and up to 100 outside, again, as long as you're maintaining social distancing. I will say that right now, locally here, kind of in Oakland County, this is going to be the key to our ability to get things done here in county, primarily transportation. Even if we have school classes or other congregational meetings, you know, church meetings and, and such, getting people to and from on public transportation is going to be a challenge, on school buses is going to be a challenge, maintaining social distancing. And again, the folks that are most at risk, the folks that are checking us out at the grocery store, often they are the folks taking public transportation. So not only are they most at risk on their jobs, but also getting to and from their jobs. That's going to be a challenge. Dr. Faust, I know you guys are doing a lot with testing our senior living, our group homes. Can you give us a little bit more of an update on that? Independent living, apartments, long-term care facilities. Oh, and we're also adding focus on group homes right now because as we've seen, uh, the independent senior living, those folks live in independent apartments and there's not a lot of cross-contamination. If they share housekeepers or share cooks or medical care providers, that's a potential transmission vector. But the folks I'm really worried about and still continue to be a problem are those in group homes. And group homes are typically anywhere from three to six residents and maybe eight or 10 staff. And once COVID is in those facilities, basically it's everywhere. So we're focusing on trying to get those tested and get them cohorted with regard to staff and residents. You know, you're making a great point too, Russ. The types of people that sometimes populate those dwellings and those facilities, for many reasons, often cannot totally understand social distancing. Many of them are frail or they don't have the cognitive ability and they can't wear a mask or remember to wear a mask. Their physical co-location puts them at very close proximity to one another, either when they're sleeping or eating or both. It is a very challenging population. And we see that in nursing homes too. One of the things that makes me take a little bit of a pause, even though we know we're seeing really great trends in these numbers, we have a very vulnerable population out there in multiple settings that are themselves hard and difficult to try to protect. There are specific subpopulations across the county that are profoundly vulnerable, and we're doing everything we can to, to focus all our efforts on keeping them safe and healthy. We really don't want to lose that entire generation of our elders. There's a number of places in the township that I work for, and I will say that the facilities that are the senior assisted living, the apartment complexes where everybody is in their later years, where they're not unhealthy, they're just living in a huge dorm, essentially, residential institutions. The facilities that have taken great care of shutting down the common areas and facilitating that, we have seen an obvious difference 
in patient outcomes when it comes to them just calling. So the facilities that are on it in preparation are doing a great job as well in preparing for this. So they're assisting in the healthcare process just by being prepared. I agree. I can't say enough positive things about these facilities and their management. They've done a phenomenal job very early on, months ago, calling us and asking, how do we prevent the spread? How do we prevent getting it into our community? And how do we prevent it from spreading? And they've done a great job of not only shutting down any communal kinds of activities, bingo night or whatever that is, the PT room, and delivering individual meals door to door, as opposed to having folks show up at the cafeteria. It's, it's been a great experience. I've been very inspired. You have to be pretty special to help take care of folks like this. We all do have a special place in our heart for their intent, but it is humbling because even though the, the large view is that the state of Michigan and Oakland County specifically are having improved numbers, we can't take our eye off the ball in some cases that there are still these vulnerable groups. And that goes right into kind of the question of the last couple of weeks that we've seen, Dr. Faust. We've had a lot of our really excellent pre-hospital providers ask me both through email or phone calls or text messages. They want us to reconsider some of the prohibitions we put on aerosol-generating procedures, things like oral intubation with direct laryngoscopy, aerosolized, nebulized respiratory treatments, some of the suctioning and positive pressure ventilation like CPAP. You can probably, and I am, uh, imagine how much they want to get back to things that in their career, many of these men and women were doing frequently and routinely with great effect. And believe me, I'm no different. In my own emergency department, I want to provide those things like we always used to as well. And I get the point that the numbers significantly are better. And some patients are, you know, the families inform us that they don't have any symptoms of COVID. The problem is it's really hard from a pragmatic standpoint to undo protocols because of the trends we're seeing without taking into account that that will put some medics at risk because we do know there are people that have this and spread it without a history or without symptoms. We would be remiss if we said, you know what, we're close enough. Let's just take our foot off the gas and let's go back to the way things used to be. And my worry is that would inadvertently get some of our providers sick. I know, like me, they want to do these things. But even in my own emergency department, we don't do oral intubation on patients without suspicion the old way we used to. Where we're in not just an N95, but often these cappers or pappers, we're putting them in, when we do so in a negative pressure room or in our resuscitation area. We're also making sure that we're keeping our airway away from us. We don't even do aerosolized nebulized treatments in the emergency department unless they're in a negative pressure room because it does generate so much aerosol. So that's a way of saying that if I can't really say we're safe enough yet to do it in my emergency department, it's hard for me to change the protocol in the county or get down the road of doing so, putting our providers at a greater risk than they would be in my own department. I wish it wasn't that way. We're close. We're watching numbers very closely and, and I'm hoping that that happens very soon. And it's not that it's no, we're just not there yet. So to everyone out there, I hear you and we all hear you. And we want to get back to a day when we can do all those things again. Unfortunately, for today, the answer is still not yet. I did have one other comment. One of the questions I heard from, and it must be going around some of the circles, but some of the people have said, haven't we seen a massive increase in people dying without airways? What I'll do is by our next podcast, I'll look at some of the CARES data, but I don't think our return of circulation has been significantly impacted. I do think that that's a concern that people think if we're not providing advanced airway, we're not getting as many hearts restarted. I understand that that may be the feeling out there, but I'll also tell you that virtually every meaningful study that's looked at that question, do advanced airway placement 
enhance the likelihood of return of spontaneous circulation? The answer is it doesn't seem to matter. What matters to return of circulation is bystander CPR and time to electricity. Those are the two factors. I'm not really aware of a well-regarded study yet that would compel me to believe anything else. We just don't have a study that says if you use an advanced airway, you get a return of circulation. And if you don't use an advanced airway, you don't get return of circulation. Those studies have not been published. Remember too, if you have a return of circulation, we are permitting, in fact, in some cases, it may make the most sense, of using a superglottic airway placed under the best circumstances you can provide. While it is somewhat aerosolized generating, it is not anywhere near as risky to the operator as direct laryngoscopy, which is required for oral intubation. I do have a follow-up question. In a recent podcast, we discussed that the priority fours in Oakland County nearly doubled or tripled in certain months compared to last year. My fear is, I hope people aren't taking that stat and correlating the high number of deaths with the rules that were made about airway. These are two separate issues. When we said the stat in a different podcast, the context is people are probably just not calling 911 as much. We talked about the number of priority four patients identified in three months of this year compared to last year and how much bigger it is this year. That's not because those are patients we're treating. These are patients that we either found dead on scene, obviously death before we got there, or they just called 911 so late that it turned into a priority four. Jeff, you make a great point. It's not from a lack of advanced airway or doing aerosol generating procedures that cause those category four or those unfortunate people that we pronounced dead at the scene to spike. What I really believe those people more than likely had were reversible, intervenable medical problems who elected not to come to the hospital. And I'm talking strokes, sepsis, chest pain, people that we would normally have transported and taken to the cath lab would have had a different outcome. So they're not dying from a lack of an airway or aerosol generating procedure. They're dying from a lack of going to the hospital out of fear or a lack of having an ability to have a visitor with them or just the knowledge that the hospitals sometimes were really frightening and looked frightening on the news or social media way, way past when that was the reality. People were still either reluctant to go or their doctors were reluctant to encourage them to go. So we're working on both of those type of things. In a way, they're sort of indirect deaths of, from COVID, but not because they had the disease. They had reluctance to exposing themselves to potentially getting the disease in our hospital, even when it wasn't a risk. Their presumed risk in them led them to believe that that was the safer thing would be to stay home, and it led to this large increase in category fours. I think it's also, well, that isn't just an Oakland County statistic. American College of Emergency Physicians identifies this problem of pronouncements at home increasing all over the country. And I think it correlates with the lack of ST elevation MIs we saw nationwide in our emergency departments, the lack of septic patients, the lack of stroke patients that for whatever reason didn't come to the hospital by EMS or any other means and had to be pronounced at home later on. So that is a great point. We don't want to conflate the two, the increase in category four pronouncements and a lack of certain procedures done typically in the pre-hospital world. I don't think you can make those connections at all. So I'm glad you pointed that out, Jeff. Yeah, all of our listeners, make sure in medicine especially, correlation and causation, those are two separate things, right? So one my thing- favorite example, Yeah, my favorite example of that is the uh, number of people that eat ice cream tracks very closely to the number of per-week drownings in the United States in a location. They're both caused by warm weather in summer, but eating a good humor bar doesn't cause drowning. That's true, unless you're in a giant pile of good humor bars and you can't get out. 
take all the sticks out first when you jump in. Now, one thing I do want to talk about is let's go back to our patients that aren't as sick that do get transported to the hospital. In many cases, some people don't want to go to the hospital because they feel they're not allowed to have any family members with them. And that can be very scary for a lot of people, especially people who don't have a background in medicine. You know, as a paramedic, I'm comfortable going to the hospital by myself. One, I probably know a lot of people there. But two, I understand the process. A lot of people don't know the process. They get a little scared. And now we're seeing hospitals identify the fact that it is very beneficial for the patient to have at least one family member there. Has there been any changes to those rules? And what is it looking like in Oakland County hospitals? You know, Jeff, that, that is a great concern of people whether they arrive by EMS or private car the, the last several months where they haven't had access to visitors except with some relatively stringent exceptions, things like language barrier or, or someone who's so frail and debilitated really can't give us much of a history or participate with the exam too well. But the governor executive order update now allows hospitals within the confines of their ability to do so to allow certain levels of visitation. So she has now allowed, in the cases of all adult patients, if the hospital can permit it safely, to screen those visitors, but to allow a visitor to accompany the patient with kind of strict visitation criteria, meaning they must be screened for temperature, they must be willing to wear a mask, stay in the patient's room, not wander the hospital, or leave the patient's area of care for the simple reason that we can keep them safe with the patient. We can't do the same if they're out and about in other parts of the facility where they may unwittingly expose themselves to more patients. In some hospitals, because of the governor's order, they're even allowing up to two visitors for a child. Now, visitor is an adult. Visitors are not uh, young children themselves. It's much more difficult for them to comply with masking and social hygiene rules. And frankly, it's somewhat harder to keep an eye on where they're going. But in the case of most of our Oakland County hospitals, uh, many have augmented their visitation capabilities now. And while they will be screened and wearing a mask, they'll also be able to advocate for their family and friend, which is, I think, an enormous relief to us as the hospital personnel, as well as especially to the patient and their family. We've all had to get really good at helping patients talk to their loved ones over the phone, and we've done our singular level best to do so. It's not the same, and we don't pretend that it's the same. So a really good thing. And I think we're seeing some additional visits to the hospital now simply because we are allowing visitors, patients and their loved ones are now more supportive of the decision to go to the hospital. And maybe some of the category four stuff increase we saw before reflected a fear of being alone. As much as we can eliminate that sense that you're all by yourself or don't have an advocate, hopefully more people will come and we'll see our level four pronouncements return back to the baseline we all knew back in 2018 and 2019. If you're unsure of the facility as your destination, what their actual visitor allowances are in real time, simply ask over the radio, obtain medical control and say the family would like to accompany at least one member with this loved one. Is your hospital screening and permitting visitors at this time? And the people over the radio can indicate that that's the case or not. I see a lot of older people and a lot of people with these vaguer symptoms where they really should be looked at, but under the circumstances, they feel scared. They don't want to be left alone. Two things have been very beneficial to getting them to go to the hospital. One, at my local hospital, they're allowing one adult visitor per patient. The other thing is, bring your cell phone and charger. You can FaceTime with them the whole time. 
These hospitals are okay with that because it's giving these patients a sense of security. And when you feel safe, you tend to heal a little bit better and you're probably easier on the healthcare providers that are in that hospital. So make sure if you're an EMS provider to touch base with your EMS coordinator and identify the hospital's rules that you transport to, how many people are allowed. And maybe once in a while ask them, do you got your cell phone charger with you? That's going to be beneficial to that person and make them feel a lot better when they get to the hospital and have the ability to power up. That's a great point. Any way to help communicate, and certainly cell phones are the best. I wish every emergency room had really great cell service. It's kind of spotty in the ER itself. Sometimes you'll get pretty reasonable cell service near an outside wall, but in the heart where some of the radiology equipment is, there's so much lead in the walls that sometimes it's very difficult to get reliable signal. But bringing it's a great option because at the very least we can work with you and try to help you reach out to your family. I just want to say one last thing, too, about the people that have been asking about oral intubation and positive pressure ventilation and those that want to do procedures that we have all done in the past. I think it's a tremendous credit to their intense desire to treat people right. And I applaud it. And I'm glad that they asked the questions. I think it's also important to remember that they have done a great job protecting themselves in this extraordinarily difficult time. We have had people in our world get sick, some of them seriously ill. But in Oakland County, we have not had a large number of severe illness or death among our pre-hospital colleagues. And they deserve the credit for that. They're the ones that have changed the way they practiced to be able to stay in the game, stay on the field, and continue to help people. The same cannot be said in every part of the United States. We have some communities where the number of pre-hospital providers that have gotten sick or severely ill or even died is much worse than ours. And some of the statistics are a little hard because it's not reported individually. But we know as of May 25th, there were over 50 deaths of pre-hospital providers so far in the United States. Now, that doesn't count those that got ill or severely ill but didn't die. That's just a very sobering thing. These are our men and women colleagues that we've lost to this devastating illness. I think it probably trends very similar to the number of doctors and nurses that have gotten ill or severely ill in our country. So hats off to you for wanting to do it. I hope it's very soon when we can permit these things once again. I want to do it myself in my own emergency room. One of my self-field medics said, won't I get to the point where it's been so long since I've done oral intubation, maybe I'll be rusty. And I told him that's absolutely likely. In which case, we'll use our sim labs and hospitals. We'll come to your private agency. We'll bring our mannequins. We'll go over the sort of the psychomotor, what we do again to make everyone try to feel comfortable. But yeah, that's a real risk among EMS providers. It's a real risk among emergency physicians. If we're intubating almost everyone with a glidoscope, video laryngoscope, like. we're, we're likely to get just as rusty. So yeah, I agree. And I see that as a real risk, but still one that in the end is offset by the improved likelihood that we can avoid illness and death in our colleagues. I just want to follow up on your hats off to the local fire rescue EMS pre-hospital folks. Along with evidence of their competence and passion for the job and taking care of people is um, I want to give a shout out to the folks that are helping to go out and test the various uh, senior facilities with us and for us. We couldn't do it without y'all. Any of you listening and any of your colleagues that aren't, you have our profound gratitude here at County. And mine too. Mine too, that Faust. This is part of the fiber that makes these people do what they do. They give selflessly, sometimes in the worst possible environmental conditions, day, night, cold, hot. We just know they're out there doing it and they represent the best of what we try to be. And I'm very grateful like you are for that. EMS providers reach is far beyond their grasp. 
we find that there's a lot of people out there that can and are willing to do so much more than going on calls. They just don't grasp what's available to them. They don't know. This is another great opportunity to show EMS providers how they can make an additional impact on the community for no other reason than they feel compelled or they want to. So again, EMS providers keep pushing what's available if you want to continue your participation beyond the call. Thanks again to Stephen Russ. I couldn't do this without you. Seriously, nobody would care or listen if it was just me. And thank you all out there for listening. Please continue to email your questions, comments, feedback, or ideas for more episodes to qi at ocmca.org. And visit ocmca.org slash coronavirus for the latest information, protocols, podcast episodes, and other details. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at EMS On Air and subscribe, leave a rating and review, whatever platform you use, or thank you for listening to the EMS On Air podcast. Stay safe and have a great day.